Hello again, and welcome back to another wormhole. Today, we're taking on a subject that's possibly near and dear to your heart, or at least to your legs. That's right. This week, we're talking about jeans. Fashion is very, very, very political, I would say. <laughs> Even when you're not really trying to say something, you still reflect what's important to you and what subcultures you belong in and kind of what you believe in. Our guest today is someone who's done a lot of thinking about how what we wear defines us. My name is Marilyn Comar, and I'm a fashion history journalist. From Campsite Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. We'll get into it after the break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you, do you know how denim got to America? Okay, so we are in the early to mid 1800s. It started when the gold rush happened in California. So at that time when miners went to California, um, they were wearing kind of like normal, tough cotton clothes, uh, but it's you know very difficult labor intensive work. So they would either get stained, they would rip, they just weren't uh, really sustainable for that job. Um, and then they brought in denim, which I believe originated in India, uh, the fabric itself. But they started using denim because it was really rough. It was hard to rip. What kinds of cuts were the jeans? Like, what's a, like a, a historical American jean cut? Yeah, it wasn't like, <laughs> I wouldn't say that there was any flair to it at all. It was very basic. Yeah. And back then we didn't have mass production. So the first mass produced clothing, quote unquote, um, they were called slop shops. And it was where um, fishermen would go and buy their clothes. So before you would have to go to a tailor to create any sort of clothing, like shirts, pants, dresses, what have you. These slop shops um, were like the first stores where you could actually buy like pre-made clothing. So all of them were really baggy. All of them were really loose because they had to fit a wide variety of body types. And there wasn't like small, medium, large back then. It was like, right. here's this shirt, make do with it. And the first slop shop was actually Brooks Brothers, which is funny because now, you know, they sell upscale suits. So denim was being used at that time in California by uh, gold miners, coal miners, etc. But those were usually, you know, earmarked for white people. Uh, and then denim at that same time was also used on plantations by plantation owners, and they bought uh, denim uniforms for their enslaved people. Right. Uh, and at that time, denim was used uh, not only because it was practical, you know, like it wouldn't rip, it was sturdy, um, you wouldn't see stains as clearly, but also it created a real social divide because at that time, plantation owners and their families, they usually wore white linen and cotton, and whereas their enslaved people would wear rough denim. So it created like this very loud visual contrast. Right. So does this create a divide in society? Like does denim 
get uh, immediately associated with like race and class? Yes, 100%. So, okay, so like this is a little bit tricky to talk about because there's so many layers. So, for example, you know, the way that the U.S. is constructed, like the North, the West, the East, the South, we're all kind of like in our own different cultural bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. So in the South, 100% denim um, is very, was very much earmarked towards enslaved people, right? So like, I don't know about this 100%, but I would imagine that even white working class people probably wouldn't wear denim. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Just because the visual optics of it is very much earmarked as the uniform of enslaved people working on plantations. But however, if you go to the West, right, like that's the uniform of a cowboy. That's the uniform of rough and tumble miners who are trying to strike gold and make it rich. So that's a little bit more romantic. And because of that, Northerners, like in around the 1920s, 1930s, especially with old Hollywood, people in the Northeast, like, you know, the coastal cities, so like New York, places like that, the rich people would actually come to the West to go on dude ranches mm -hmm. and kind of fulfill like these cowboy fantasies, right? So they would come to a ranch, they would ride some horses, um, they would like pretend that they're like romantic cowboys, etc. Around the 1920s or 30s, Vogue actually started marketing denim for these wealthy women that would go to the ranches on vacation. Uh, but they made it very clear that like you're only supposed to wear that while at the ranch. Don't come back to New York and like wear it out. It was very much like a costume that you would put on. I'm curious how how denim because obviously denim is now at this point in American history is now charged with meaning. Like, you you know, mm -hmm. like in the West, it means something different in the South, but it's like, there is a meaning, there's a connotation. Um, how does that become political? So first, let's just touch on very briefly that in the 1950s with Elvis, Rebel Without a Cause, denim started to kind of permeate um, the youth quake culture, right? So teens started to kind of look at it just because like these badass guys were wearing it. And part of the reason that they liked it was because it was very much against social norms. Mm -hmm. So at that time, you would wear denim only to do kind of like rough yard work, you know, working on a car. Maybe you're doing some intensive spring cleaning. So clothes that you don't care about getting dirty, but you would never in a million, million years wear it out. Right. Like mm -hmm. if you're trying to go to the movie theaters, to a bar, whatever, like people would think you're nuts. It'd be like going to a bar in slippers. Right. Like it'd be like, are you having a mental breakdown? People like, do that now, though. I, I've seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, maybe. But like, it's, right. It's, it's not like embraced yes, course, where it's yeah. like, oh, awesome Homer Simpson slippers. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like That would be kind of the equivalent. Um, but because these like very like masculine, you know, like in the public eye guys started wearing it, the youth quake culture was starting to get kind of into it but it was still you know like only like teens could get away with it mm -hmm. and at that they would still get punished i found this article like from mid-1950s that it started becoming a trend to wear blue slacks to school it wasn't even jeans it was just mm -hmm. blue slacks but it was towing the line because it kind of looked like denim from far away and the school straight up uh, suspended 200 students. So, right, like, it wasn't accepted by any means. Um, it wasn't embraced. Wasn't embraced is kind of an understatement. To give you a representative story, 
The whole reason Canadian tuxedos are a thing is because of Bing Crosby. He was in Canada, and he loved Levi's jeans. So, as the story goes, Crosby goes out to do something outdoorsy wearing jeans, because, you know, jeans are good for that sort of thing. And when he gets back to his hotel, he wants a drink. Very reasonable. But the bar doesn't let him in because he's wearing jeans, even though, again, he's Bing Crosby. A massive star! He was America's sweetheart. So Levi's gets wind of this and sends him an entire denim tuxedo. Now the hotel has to let him in. And so they do. Because the first time they rejected him, they got a ton of negative publicity, and they really don't want any more. But yes, denim used to be that polarizing. Now, we're coming into the 60s, uh, and the way that denim started to come into the public eye because of the civil rights movement, and specifically because of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or as we usually refer to them as SNCC. So these students, they were fighting for civil rights. They were kind of like the ones propelling the civil rights movement. Uh, they started to wear denim as a visual representation of how little has changed in America since the Reformation. They put on denim specifically because, number one, not only is that what enslaved people were forced into wearing, but also that's what poor sharecroppers uh, in the South have continued to wear. So by putting that on, you know, they wouldn't have to speak any words, but the white people watching these protests, watching these marches, they knew exactly what they were saying. And that made white people extremely, mm -hmm. extremely uncomfortable. Right, so it's, it's both solidarity and sort of a shocking thing. Right. This denim thing in the 60s, it exploded from 1960, 1963, and there's so many layers to it. So in the beginning, they kind of used it as like this visual representation. Um, but then also they began to wear it out of pure practicality. So when the civil rights movement began in the 1950s, the original activists, they knew that they had to present a super polished aesthetic. During that time, they would be wearing their Sunday best because of respectability politics. So that included, you know, having your hair straightened and pressed, wearing your best suits, best dresses, best shoes at all times, literally around the clock, but especially when you were doing these protests. Because if not, the news would, you know, rely on old stereotypes and old tropes of like, um, these are unkempt people, you know, they're creating chaos, they're destroying the social order. But if they look better than how white people represented themselves, then you, you literally couldn't rely on those stereotypes. Um, so that's what they enforced up to the 60s. But in the 1960s, you know, they ramped up the way that the group would protest. And because of that, like the sit-ins, you know, the marches, things began to become a lot more physical in the sense of, you know, they would get attack dogs would be sent on them, high pressure hoses would be turned on them. So for example, the SNCC and other uh, civil rights activists, you know, they would go to these sit-ins, they would uh, go to the marches, they would do protests. And during that time, you know, they would be physically beaten and assaulted by white spectators and the police. And it became very expensive 
to continue to wear that uniform because you're constantly having to dry clean your clothes. It's constantly getting ripped. You know, you constantly have to buy new clothes because if you're supposed to be respectable, you can't wear like mended dresses and, you know, destroyed suits. And also, this is kind of how the natural hair movement began, because every time that, you know, they would get food thrown at them and stuff like that, the pressed hair would start to become coily again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the, the women especially would constantly have to go to the beauty parlors and get their hair redone. But I mean, these were college students. Like there's literally reports where they were like, I could barely afford buying dinner, let alone going to the hair salon like three times a week. So they started wearing these uh, denim uniform and wearing natural hairstyles purely out of necessity. And then there was also a safety measure for the women. Um, because when they would get arrested, a lot of the times uh, the police officers would actually sexually assault them or try to degrade them. So, for example, they would put pressure hoses on them because then their dresses would cling to them and show off their bodies. And there would also be reports of them being in jail and the police officers would actually like sexually assault them uh, in the prisons. But because they were women, but also black women, they, you know, they couldn't report it. There would be no justice served for that anyway. But if they had denim jeans on, that would give them an extra layer of protection as well. After the break, Martin Luther King Jr. wears jeans. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963 was one of the most important events in American history. A quarter of a million people attended, which made it one of the largest political rallies this country has ever seen. And it helped get the Civil Rights Act passed the next year. That's the law that made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race, color, sex, religion, or national origin. So the March on Washington, uh, if you look at photos from there, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., he wore denim. Uh, a lot of the younger folks wore denim. The people who especially were on stage wore denim. But if you look like the older generation, like the original activists, they still wore their Sunday best. So you kind of saw like this schism on stage of the younger people are trying to like change the message. Right. And eventually that, that happens, right? Yeah. So the SNCC, they would constantly do the freedom rides to the South to try to get sharecroppers and Southern Black residents to register to vote. 
Um, but before they started wearing denim, when they would put on, you know, just like normal clothes, like the, the clothing that they usually wore, there would be like a very large divide. So the sharecroppers, they'd be like wearing denim, work clothes, etc. And then you've got like these middle class kids being like, hey, do you want to, you know, register for voting? But to register for voting was very, very dangerous, right? Like you, you literally invited the KKK to your front door. Right. Black voters made up 7% of voters in Mississippi. And then there would be like counties where it literally be like zero black people that would be voting. And it was because there was so much violence uh, enforcing it. So, you know, when these SNCC students came and asked these people to sign up for voting, the Southerners were like, you don't understand what you're asking us to do. Like for you, this is easy. For us, this could be life or death. Um, so they started wearing denim as kind of a way to like bridge that divide where it's like I'm just like you I respect you you know like they kind of erased the equation of class between them But on the flip side, some of the Southerners actually didn't like that. Um, they actually saw it as kind of like an appropriation where they were like, well, you are wealthy. You get to decide to put on and take off denim. But like for us, we can't put on and take off our poverty. So on one hand, when you were putting on denim, you were uh, projecting this idea to like the white community that you know nothing has changed since Jim Crow era mm -hmm. but on the other hand the southerners didn't really appreciate that because they were like you're kind of putting on a costume right like it was a bit disrespectful and especially since people that grew up as sharecroppers and then left like the next generation went up north or whatever they would refuse to wear denim because of that because to them it was degrading mm -hmm. You right. know, like, it's like I was forced to wear this. Putting on a suit, nice dress, doing that, that was actually like, you were you were choosing that yourself. You were reclaiming your dignity. But to be forced to wear denim was degrading. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about the media. How did the media think about all of this? Um, and how did the media track the development, I mean, I guess the social development of uh, denim as it went from sort of like, you know, low class working mm -hmm. people's clothes that has a racial dimension to like this thing that everyone is starting to wear. Yeah. So they hated it. Great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were not into it. Um, but you know, it, cause it was very much, it was very political. It was very politically charged. It was very in your face. Um, so, you know, the media was dominated, it was white media, right? So they weren't into the in-your-face rights grab attached to that. But what started happening was that more white students started to join the SNCC. By like 1963, there were like hundreds of white students that were joining the protest and that were helping to push the civil rights cause. And they too started to wear denim. So now that you see a bunch of white kids wear denim, that political uh, message started to get diluted. Because for them, like, 
you know, they don't have roots in sharecropping and plantations. It wasn't politically charged for them to wear something like that. Instead, they were like appropriating a uniform of the group. Mm -hmm. um, and then once they started to wear it en masse, and then, you know, you saw images of them wearing it in the newspaper, like other white teens were like, hey, that's kind of cool. That's kind of edgy. And it just slowly started to become mainstream to the point where it started to lose its meaning, you know, rather than it becoming this highly charged political image. Instead, it just started to become like this, you know, think of it like in 2020, right? Like when Trump became president, you had this influx of white activists kind of coming into the sphere because they didn't like what was happening. But after a couple months, you know, that, that, anger that charge dissipated and then they left the activist movement as well. They were kind of there just because it was part of the wave, but they weren't there for the long term. They put on the uniform, they marched the marches, but after a while they left. But that image of white people wearing denim stained ingrained, and that's kind of like when the hippie movement started to wear it as well. And then the definition started to change, right? Activists were also hippies, so that definition began to become more white-centric and that original definition got di diluted. And that's when Levi's, they started their trucker code collection, which was basically you wear denim jeans with like a denim jacket and it's very like Route 64 trucker guys wearing it. Uh, but they lifted that straight from sharecroppers uniforms. You know, sharecroppers would wear overalls and when it would get cold, they would put on a barnyard coat that was also a denim. Um, and then hippies were like, no, that's ours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm curious about the moment when denim actually became a mainstream thing. Like, like, what's the turning point? I don't know this for certain, but I honestly think it is when the white students started to wear it en masse during the protests. Mm -hmm. I think that's when it became mainstream because, like, these activists then became hippies. And then that's when brands like Levi's and such, or even, like, high designer brands, they started to turn out like hippie outfits. And because denim was part of that equation, they started to pump out like denim outfits, like the Canadian tuxedo and like mm -hmm, these, mm -hmm. you know, like the trucker coat and stuff like that. And then it just, just exploded. So it, it became stripped of its meaning and then capitalized on. Mm -hmm. When you were learning all of this stuff, did it change the way you thought about the clothes that you were putting on? I mean, obviously as a fashion historian, you have probably a different relationship to your what you wear than most people, but I'm curious. So I originally wrote the history of jeans for Bustle like years ago. Um, and then I wrote this piece maybe three years after that original one. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to the Levi's archivist, when I was doing my deep dive into the research, I didn't find anywhere a mention to the civil rights movement. Literally, absolutely nowhere. Um, when I finally heard about denim, I was actually talking to an activist in Chicago and I was interviewing her something for like some kind of like, what are your favorite jeans to wear <laughs> article? And she briefly mentioned, she's like, oh, you know, jeans are an important part of my wardrobe because, um, 
The respectability politics of the 1960s, you know, activists started to wear denim during that time uh, because of that. And I was like, what are you actually talking about? Right. And like, I, you know, and then I like dove into it with that. And like, for me, it just shows how much history we bury, especially if it's attached to marginalized groups. Right. And that could be like with anything. It's like, we don't really like the history of activists wearing denim isn't mainstream for us, isn't common knowledge for us, even though it happens in the 60s, which I mean, granted, that was now what, 60 years ago, right? But like a lot of us still remember that decade. We still know a lot about that decade, right? And it's just like we as a society like like to bury those histories. Big thanks to Marilyn Komar. You can find her on Twitter at Marilyn Komar. That's M-A-R-L-E-N-K-O-M-A-R. And you can read more of her work on her website, MarilynKomar.com. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Tanita Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Marilyn Komar for the fashion knowledge. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsedcampsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsePod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijan Cakes. Okay, thanks for listening. See you next time.